the highest level what we're going to do to solve the climate crisis, we're going to electrify everything, right? That's like mm -hmm. the, the phrase. What we're going to do is we're going to double or triple the amount of electricity that we consume over the next two or three decades. And so in fact, the pie isn't fixed. The pie is growing to three, maybe four times its, its size. And it's a huge pie. And so, you know, I think where, you know, we start from and, and, and where we try to, you know, talk with, you know, utilities and regulators and things like that about is it's a big pie today. It's growing. There's more than enough for everyone to, to sort of go around. Like, let's figure out how to do this in the best way, way possible. And I think if you start from that point, you have more productive conversations. It was once said that distributed energy is not an energy source, but a revolution in energy systems. It's less about making more energy and more about making energy work smarter. That is a beautiful vision. Let's meet the man making it a reality. I'm Lex Kefauver. Welcome to Who's Saving the Planet. Today on the podcast, we have Tim Haid, the COO and co-founder of Scale Microgrid Solutions. Scale Microgrid is a vertically integrated distributed energy platform, and we are going to get into the weeds on what exactly that means. But the short of it, in the future, we will need to entirely redesign our relationship with energy. Scale Microgrids is at the vanguard of building that future, and they're doing it today. Now, Tim himself, he has a fascinating background. Tim went to the United, Air, United States Air Force Academy and then became an officer in the United States Air Force for five years. After he left the service, he went on to Stanford to get his MBA and then went on to be a microgrid specialist before starting his own company, Scale Microgrids, in 2016. Just four years later, they raised $300 million from Warburg Pincus, one of the bluest blue chip names in private equity. And then this past March, they secured another $225 million in energy transition debt financing to further accelerate their expansion into the distributed energy market. So Scale Microgrids has over half a billion dollars that they're using to recreate our relationship with energy, make it more durable, make it more resilient, make it more accessible. So with the wind at their backs, I talk with Tim about what role he sees scale microgrid playing in reshaping the future of energy. And while this may seem like a Cinderella story, there are always hard days and no straight lines to success. Tim talks about what it was like to go from being in the service to becoming an entrepreneur and how even on the outside, it may look like things are rosy, but every single day you got to fight to build something that is meaningful, worthwhile, and enduring. All right, here's our conversation with Tim Hayde, the COO and co-founder of Scale Microgrid Solutions. Tim, welcome to Who's Saving the Planet. Glad to have you on board. Thanks so much for having me, Lex. I'm looking forward to it. Let's start at the top. What in the world is a microgrid? Yeah, so maybe I'll start at like the 30,000 foot level and then, and then we can sort of get into more detail. I think in general, the thing people should think about when they think about microgrids or distributed energy resources is there's really a fundamental paradigm shift occurring uh, globally with respect to how we generate electricity. And so electricity has been a commercial product for give or take 120 years at this point. And for essentially that entire time period, the electric grid has been a one-way street. Mm -hmm. And so we build really, really big power plants and then we produce electricity and we transmit that electricity over wires to loads like your house or your grocery store, whatever the case might be. But the flow of electrons has always been in one direction. And as we go through the energy transition for a bunch of reasons, mostly surrounding climate mitigation and climate adaptation, we're changing the way the electricity grid works and we're turning it into a bi-directional system. And so electricity is going to be generated still at big power plants, right? Big utility scale solar and wind farms and nuclear plants and hydroelectric plants, but also on our rooftops and in our kitchens and things like that. And so we're, we, we're sort of merging a, a traditionally top down system with a bottom up system. And the implications of that are really profound. 
And so microgrids are one of those distributed energy resources that sits at the facility level, typically in a commercial or an industrial facility or a small community or something like that. And the way to think about it is it's a personal power plant. And so you're generating at least a portion of your own electricity. And then if you produce excess electricity, you're giving that back to your neighbors and the local community and the grid. Um, and then key, and this is the one thing that sort of differentiates microgrids from the broader distributed energy resources landscape, microgrids inherently have the ability to island from the grid during disruption. And so if there's a power outage or an extreme weather event or a cyber attack or any of the things that could really uh, you know, sort of impact uh, power reliability, a microgrid has the capability to island either a section of the grid or an individual home or business um, so that you can keep operations going. Um, and so, you know, as we sort of move into this next phase of the energy transition, where, you know, consumers are generally more concerned about their carbon footprint, uh, you know, grid reliability and resilience and energy costs, um, microgrids are becoming an increasingly appealing option for a whole host of different customers in different sectors. My parents have uh, solar panels on their home. Now, this would not be considered a microgrid though, right? There needs to be some more interconnectivity around the surrounding communities or sort of the other, the other electrically, electrical using and generating facilities. That, that's correct. And so the key distinction uh, between a microgrid and distributed energy resources of which solar panels are one is that ability to island. Right. And traditionally, um, solar by itself as a standalone asset you can't really island with because it's a variable resource. But if you pair solar with a battery um, and you're able to turn that into a dispatchable load and you put the right sort of electrical infrastructure in place to make this happen, then you can actually island from the grid. And so if your parents added a new electric panel and a battery to complement their existing solar system, then it would be a microgrid. And increasingly, uh, that's becoming a more economically viable option for folks. Um, and, you know, that that's a big trend that's that's happening, you know, sort of regionally, but really all over the country. Right. OK, so <clears throat> electricity for the last 150 years, 100 plus years generated in one place, flowed to the load bears, the places that needed the electricity. That was a one way street. Now we're developing new technology to change that relationship between energy generation and use. How does scale microgrid solutions? How do you guys, what is your role in this? Yeah, so we serve a particular niche of the market, which is traditionally mission critical commercial and industrial facilities. And so, you know, as the industry evolves, we're evolving as well. But um, when we started the company, our real focus was on bringing resilience to customers who needed resilience, right? So you think about, you know, hospitals or data centers or any sort of, you know, town centers, police stations, fire stations, things like that. Any type of infrastructure that can't go down when there's a grid outage. Um, those are the those are the folks that we were talking to. And really our sort of niche that we carved out in the market was when resilience was your primary driver, mm -hmm. um, then you would come talk to us and we would design you the most resilient system we possibly could in the most economically viable and sustainable way. And, you know, sort of how we design those systems and the technologies we use um, and how we finance them and contract them and all that kind of stuff has evolved over time. But that basic premise uh, still, still remains. And so most of our work is in the CNI sector. We do some municipal work. Um, you know, our, our customer base is expanding, especially, you know, as grid reliability issues become a bigger, bigger problem for folks. So, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, California is our biggest market right now. That's largely driven by people's concerns about both energy costs, but also, you know, public safety power shutoffs, wildfires, things like that. For sure. Um, and so really, you know, the I think the landscape of uh, consumers who are very concerned about energy reliability, resilience, cost, sustainability, all those types of things is growing rather rapidly. And so therefore, like the folks that we're talking to are, is, is growing proportionally to that, if that makes sense. 
So, well, not only does it make sense, but it's borne out by the growth of your company, right? This is something that is less than a decade old, and you guys have gone from a sparkle in your eye to something that is really making a dent in the way that people are thinking about, like you said, energy resilience, but also pushing forward the technology involved with this thing that we all do, which is use electricity. So how have you guys been able to power? Like The niche market makes sense, right? You need something where you can keep the lights on hospitals, municipalities, local facilities, evacuation centers, like all of those things where, you know, there's something that terrible happens and that is happening increasingly with an increasing frequency these days. And so resiliency is important before we even get into anything around like cybersecurity and things like that. But that also requires a number of step function changes in our ability to use technology, to adapt that technology to this use case. So what have you guys done to push forward how we're using electricity and thinking about it? Yeah, so, um, you know, I think probably from a technological standpoint, the thing that we were furthest ahead of the market on was incorporating battery energy storage systems into these types of um, applications. And so, um, you know, I think this is kind of hard for people to fathom in 2023, but in 2015, when we, started to lay the groundwork for this company, batteries were not used in commercial power applications, right? There were lead acid batteries and UPS systems and things like that that were used in certain cases, but lithium ion batteries and sort of longer duration storage wasn't a thing. And if you talk to a lot of, you know, sophisticated technical folks in the energy industry uh, in sort of the 2010 to 2015 timeframe, um, they would tell you that batteries were never going to be a thing. And it was a primarily an economic argument. Like we're never going to be able to get the cost per kilowatt hour down to a place where it's competitive in the energy landscape. Um, we saw it differently, right? And our basic thesis on it was electric vehicles are going to be a thing. Mm -hmm. um, I learned that the first time I got into a Tesla and drove a Tesla, and it was the best driving experience of my life. And my takeaway from that was people are going to want to drive electric vehicles. And so you sort of started to think about the implications of that. And one of the implications of the electric vehicle revolution is that we have to produce an awful lot of batteries. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And as we stand up that manufacturing capacity and that refining capacity and the production capacity, um, that's going to drive the cost per kilowatt hour of battery storage down to a level where it can really be competitive in energy markets. And so I think we were, you know, among the first distributed energy companies to really start utilizing batteries as a core technology in our, you know, tech stack, um, you know, alongside solar. And at the time we were doing a lot of cogeneration and um, some natural gas, uh, dispatchable natural gas and things like that. Um, but we kind of really made a big bet on batteries and said, we think that batteries are going to be sort of the hub of distributed energy systems moving forward. Um, and I think so far that bet has proven to be um, a pretty good one. Um, and, and so, you know, I think now we're at a place where, you know, lithium ion is, is absolutely sort of a bedrock of the energy future uh, that we're driving towards. And now the next step of that evolution is how are we going to bring in other technologies, be those, you know, batteries or alternative fuel sources, or we could talk all about this. But, you know, what's the next step uh, to bring in complementary technologies that sort of address some of the weaknesses of lithium ion? Yeah. Um, but I think that was kind of the first big, like, technical innovation that, that we brought that sort of differentiated us in the market. And then that's really like the foundation that we've been building on over the last eight, nine years. And a lot has happened since then, both on the technology side, but also on the business we've built around it. So you think that was the that was the thing that allows you to really capture this sort of first mover advantage of incorporating batteries into the idea of energy generation and storage that gave you a leg up? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I mean, look, I think I think, you know, in 2015, when we were doing this, right, solar was already uh, fairly mature technology, right? Yeah. Um, not where it's at today, but it, it was it was pretty pretty far up the S curve at that time. Um, but the value proposition that solar could de deliver to most host customers was very very limited, right? Because the sun came out, it generated electricity, 
you could either use that electricity or you could sell it back to the grid, but those were kind of your only two options. Batteries amplify the value of solar in so many different ways, but they essentially take a variable technology and turn it into a dispatchable technology. So now you can do all sorts of cool things with it when you have a solar and a storage system behind the meter, right? You can time shift, you can island, you can you know, load balance locally, do all these different types of things that can both generate you know, either savings or revenue for your business, um, but also allow you to you know, use a higher penetration of renewable energy in your operations. And so you know, I think the, the you know, understanding that batteries were gonna be kind of the hub of this system then amplified the value proposition of a lot of technologies that we build around. And, um, and, and so I think that was, that was really the thing that sort of set us on our course. Um, and we were, we were early to the game on that. And you know, because we were early to the game on that, we got a lot of experience doing it. We got pretty good at doing it. Um, and we're continuing to improve. And I think that's you know, one of our big competitive advantages in the market right now is you know, how good we are at using batteries. Yeah, but how good you were yesterday, like, is a poor predictor of what's going to happen tomorrow. And as you said, like, batteries are becoming commoditized, right? Not to mention the fact that extracting nickel, cobalt, lithium from the places it needs to be extracted from and the way it needs to be extracted from is going to cause a whole host of geopolitical, moral, ethical, supply chain, you know. But before we get into, before we get well, into yeah, that, I mean, which we will. Okay, good, good, good. Which we will. Um What's going to be the next thing, right? If let's say batteries itself, storage capacity, regardless of the sort of frame that that takes, becomes commoditized, where do you see looking around the corner the next like strategic advantage or thing that like is going to be the battlefield where this efficiency, this you know usability, the thing that gives you guys an advantage, where's that going to be fought? Yeah. Um- so, so I think you've said about like 12 really interesting things in the last 30 <laughs> seconds. So I'm gonna, I'll, I'll try to sort of parse them. Um, so look, I think the first thing to, to understand or for, for folks listening to this to understand, right, is that um, it is true that I think battery, lithium ion battery technology is becoming commoditized. I don't think it's there yet, right? So there's still big differences between kind of tier one suppliers and some of the products other folks are bringing to market. Um, so it still very, very much matters what vendors you're working with, what OEMs you're working with on the, on the um, you know, hardware side. Um, but what's definitely not becoming commoditized is how you utilize those batteries in different applications, right? And so um, that's, I think, one of the biggest differentiators for owner operators of battery systems today is how do you write the software algorithms that allow the battery to interface with the grid so you can generate the most value, right? And that's the place right now on the software side of the industry where I think there's more differentiation than there is anywhere else. And so Mm -hmm. while it's fair to say that like, I think we are probably on a path to to batteries being commoditized from a hardware standpoint, um, from a software and an operational standpoint, I think there's still a lot of meat on the bone. Um, that's one of the things we focus a lot of our time on is trying to figure out, you know, how can we develop the right set or suite of algorithms and the right control systems to make sure that we're optimizing value for ourselves and our customers. Um, and it's really, really difficult and there's a lot of differentiation. I can feel you lobbing this giant, like, and now we talk about AI softball, like in into my yeah, part and, of the court. and look, that's you know that's that's sort. We could probably spend another you know hour talking about just that you know component, right? What's going to happen? AI um, actually is going to play a big role in in these systems moving forward, and it's something we're spending a lot of time on as a company right now, trying to you know figure out. Um, you know, I think I, I think historically, you know. The differentiation between you know machine learning al- algorithms and just complicated algorithms um, hasn't been super clear to us, but there's obviously been some big breakthroughs over the past year on the AI front that are really really exciting for people that own fleets of assets like we do. Um, but that that sort of we'll, we'll set that aside for for now. Um, maybe I can come back and, and we can talk <laughs> all about that. No, I think sometimes with AI, it's easier to just be like, yes, it's going to happen. It's going to change everything. We don't know exactly how it's going to change everything. But there's no way to 
stem that tide. We're going to live in that world. And so we're going to ride that wave as best we can. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and um, I think it's really, really interesting. And there's a lot of positive use cases in the energy industry overall. But look, on the, on the hardware side, right? I mean, I think you start off with what is lithium ion really, really good at? And lithium ion is really, really good at sort of what we talk about in the industry is short duration storage. But really what that means is like we can store electricity for hours, right? Mm-hmm. So typically when you buy a lithium ion battery in today's market, the longest duration battery you're going to buy to generate economic value is about four hours of duration, right? Um, as we think about decarbonizing the electricity system and doing so in a, in a, in a really, really quick manner, um, pairing renewables with short duration storage solves a lot of problems and can probably get us to like, I don't know, depending on who you talk to, like 60, 70% renewable energy penetration, just having a lot of solar, a lot of wind, a lot of hydro, um, you know, nuclear is kind of in its own category, but I'll throw it in there too for, for our nuclear brothers out there. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then pairing that with short duration storage, we could probably get to like, I don't know, 60, 70% uh, right. decarbonization of the electricity system. If you want to get to 100% decarbonization, which is the goal, then we need to innovate uh, on a number of different fronts. But the biggest front is figuring out long duration storage, right? Mm-hmm. And that's both, there's kind of different kinds of long duration storage. There's weekly storage and then there's seasonal storage. There's different technologies that are gonna play different roles. Um, but look, I think there's a lot we're interested in, right? So there are new battery chemistries coming online. You know, My flavor of the month right now is a chemistry called nickel hydrogen. Um, we've been looking at that a lot, and I think you know initial results um, from that are are really positive. Um, you know, there's there's a form energy if if y'all y'all have heard of that, which is working sure. on iron air battery, which is I think really promising from a seasonal storage standpoint. Um, so there are all sorts of different battery chemistries that are coming online to help complement what lithium ion is already really good at, and then like sort of in a slightly different asset class there are alternative fuels. And, you know, that like generally in that category, you talk about like renewable natural gas, biogas, things like that. But I think like the thing everyone's really excited about is hydrogen um, and how we can utilize hydrogen in a dispatchable capacity. Um, And look, like I'm not super bullish on hydrogen um, as a distributed energy resources fuel or, uh, you know, sort of a microgrid fuel of the future, um, primarily because it's very, very hard to uh, transport hydrogen from where it's made to where you would want to use it. Um, But I do think there are a lot of applications, right, like industrial heating, some grid scale storage, stuff like that, where, you know, hydrogen can play a really, really meaningful role. Um, And so, you know, I think that's ultimately like one of the biggest challenges for the energy transition right now is, you know, we have a good building block with sort of renewables paired with lithium ion storage that's going to get us a good chunk of the way to where we need to go. But to get that incremental 30, 40 percent, we really need to figure out long duration, medium and long duration energy storage. Um, And that's where a lot of innovation in the sector is taking place right now. And um, you know, again, I don't think we figured it out, but there are a lot of positive indicators, and I think we're in a pretty good place. You know, I was thinking about, as you were saying that, it. there's got to be this tipping point at some point where you go from, like, startup to utility. And just as a business model, as sort of an external force, is what does it mean to do the thing that you do? That changes, right? And so right now you guys are still... I mean, you're incredibly well capitalized, worth billions of dollars and all of that, but you're still in startup mode. You're still like, we need to like, you know, day zero it all the time. At some point, though, as large scale systems become dependent on the technology and it's integrated in it, it's more of a monopolistic relationship with this energy usage. It's too hard to change effectively. And so then it becomes more of a utility based function where you have a effective monopoly over the people that are using this. And that can slow this pace of innovation, this, you know, questioning of how we're doing things, this desire to move forward. 
this is an impossible question to ask, which is like, how will you stop that? Because, of course, you're going to be like, we're not going to stop that. Have you met me? My name's Tim. So I'm not going to ask that question. What I'm ask is like, that also means you're fighting against entrenched players. Because as a startup in an energy space, you on the other side of that fence are both monopolistic and the legacy industries of energy creation. And you're coming in being like, we got a different way. And that's hard. How have you tried to navigate those relationships with the monopolistic energy companies, the oil and gas industry, just those major entrenched incumbents? You're catching me at a more mature period in my life, right? Like if you had asked me this question four or five years ago, um, you know, I, I would have had a different response, right? But but look, here here's the deal. I think um, for for anyone who's new to the energy industry, the first thing to know about the en- energy industry is that it is not a free market. It never has been and it never will be. Right. Um, the national security implications and the societal implications of energy systems are such that governments have to be involved. They're involved in the United States. They're involved in every country in the world. Right. So that's just like a fact of life. So the first thing to understand when you get into the energy industry is that you are getting involved in a public private partnership. And that if that's not for you, then you should go do something else. Right. I didn't realize that when we started, right? I think when we started this company, when I started my career in the energy industry, my focus was really just like, if I build the best product, right? If I build the best technology, um, you know, the rest will take care of itself. Like I'll be fine. Um, But the reality of the situation is that, you know, being uh, politically sophisticated, right? is a requirement of every energy startup, right? If you want to be able to navigate this landscape, you got to understand how the system works. Um, I think there are a lot of people and for good reasons in both in our industry and the activist community and all this kind of stuff that um, make really, really good points about what we need to do to change the system moving forward in the future, right? for whatever reason, electricity is the only industry in the United States that allows monopolies, right? right. Um, and we can have, you know, a debate forever about whether or not that's a good thing, going back to Samuel Insull in the, you know, 1930s, right? Um, but I think the thing that really changed my mind on this, uh, the CEO of Sunrun, or now the CEO of Sunrun, is, is a lady named Mary Powell, who I think is one of the smartest sort of thought leaders um, in the distributed energy industry, probably the energy industry overall. And at some point I heard her say, you know, if you think about the pace at which we have to execute this energy transition, we don't have a choice. We have to work within the system that exists today. There is no time to change the system. And you know, I, that really resonated with me because I think if you actually think about what we're trying to do over the next 25 years, right? And we talk about 2050 as this like far away goal, right? But it's really only 25 years away, right? 25 years in the energy industry is is not a, a long sure. period of time. You know, that means that that we don't have time to rethink how the electricity industry is structured, right? It's a monopoly-based system today and it's going to be a monopoly-based system in the future because no one has time to go to court for 10 years and fix that. Right. And so, you know, I think the way we think about it is, you know, our job is to understand the way the game is played and then play that game to the best of our ability. It's not to try to change the rules. And um, well, that kind of dovetails with the progression, right? Eventually, you know, you go from startup to being an entrenched player after you achieve enough success. And then, you know, the the. The scope changes. I mean, I talk with people about this all the time, this this natural conflict of like the people that got us in this place are the ones that fucked us over, right? Speaking bluntly. And they're also the ones that have the biggest opportunity for us to change course. And so we cannot, we don't have either the capacity or the time to burn it down and start over. And so it has to be an integrated approach with both from a pure climate expe- from a pure climate perspective the greatest offenders and the people with the best ideas of how to change they need to work hand in glove in order for this this whole project of a sustainable human civilization to work 
Yeah, that that's right. Look, and I, and I, and I think look, th this is something I talk to young people about all the time, right? Um, and I think it's I think it's it's very important. Yes, what you just said is a hundred percent correct, right? Like the pathway to success needs to be inclusive, right? Like the task on our plate is so large and hairy and complex that like everyone has to be working on it if we have any chance of fixing it. We need to be able to bring everyone together, which obviously in today's society is a, is a very, very tall task. But here's the advice I always give to young people, right? Um, I think when you go into a room and you start the conversation by saying, hey, the reason we're here is because your industry has been fucking over humanity for 100 years. It's a very, very bad starting point for collaboration, <laughs> right? And so look, like sure. here, here's, you know, I, over the years, right, I've talked to a lot of oil and gas folks. I've talked to a lot of coal people, right? I've talked to a lot of electric utilities. And here's, I think, their perspective on it, right? If you had the choice between be, being born in 1900 or 2000, a hundred times out of a hundred, you would choose to be born in 2000, right? We have hospitals that, you know, we have, we have air conditioning, we have, you know, all these, the internet, right? We have all these things that, you know, were built during the 20th century that improve basically everyone's quality of life, right? And so one of the unintended consequences or pretend, I guess, you know, intended consequences, depending on when you start thinking about it, um, is we obviously created this environmental catastrophe that we now have to fix. Um, but it's not fair to say that like those legacy energy players, you know, fucked us over, right? That's not a good starting point for the conversation. So, you know, I think I have the luxury of doing that because I, I am here sitting as a podcast host and not someone who's actively running an opportunity. So like, I fully appreciate that. And I take liberties with my latitude. It's, it's good, man. I think ultimately, right, like that's one of the things that, again, regardless of sort of how you feel personally, if your goal is progress, you have to kind of set that aside. Because look, like one of the things I talk about all the time, right, is we're constantly looking for talented engineers, right? right. Talented electrical and mechanical engineers. Some of the most talented electrical and mechanical engineers in the world are people that work at ExxonMobil who are using robots to drill holes three miles before the, you know, beneath the ocean surface. And if I can get those guys who can figure out how to use robots to drill holes three miles below the ocean surface to come and work on some of the problems I have, like we're going to fix that a lot faster, right? And so, you know, ultimately, I think, you know, we're at a point right now where if you're a legacy energy company um, and you're being objectively honest with yourself, you see where the puck is going, right? Mm -hmm. Like we are not going to have an oil and gas based economy for the next hundred years. It's not going to happen. We are not going to have a coal based economy for the next 10 years. It's not going to happen. Right. Um, and so you have to pivot. Right. And I think, you know, again, right, like change is hard and, you know, it means people have to learn new things and this, that and the other thing. And I don't dismiss any of that. Right. But at the end of the day, it's also a massive opportunity, right? It's a massive opportunity for those companies. It's a massive opportunity for our country, for our society, for our national security, for our allies, for our friends. Um, and so we should really be excited about taking advantage of that opportunity. And I think if you can sort of build that spirit of collaboration, like, hey, we're all in this together, right? There's one planet, like, this is our thing. We got to fix it. Um, that maximizes the probability of success, right? And it's a lot harder to do than it is to say. Um, yeah. But but I do I, I do think a lot of times like conversations between legacy energy folks and the new wave of professionals coming into our space start off way too adversarially. No, but I mean for sure. But that's also it's really hard to start a startup pragmatically. It just is this like leap into the unknown where you have the audacity to believe that something doesn't exist is going to exist and starting starting that from is from a well-reasoned place is hard like you need a lot of battle wounds to like see that and a lot of you know first or early entrepreneurs don't myself included I want to take one I want to caveat one thing that you said which is that like 
would you rather be born in the 1900s or the 2000s? Obviously, you'd rather be born now. One of the things that I think that we as a society or as a people are struggling with is that the advance of our technology has far outpaced our advancement with things like moralistic and ethical ways that we treat each other, that we treat the environment, and what we do with that technology. And so, yes, given the amount of resources that we have and this things that would be conceived as just purely magic a hundred years ago, we still are not treating each well each other well. There still is starvation and obesity and like incredible inequities up and down and like wealth disparities that's been as bad as it has been for which is all to say that like yes it's better to be born now than then but that still is a huge delta for how much we could have done with these gifts of the microchip and plastic and the internet and even more sort of efficiencies in terms of energy generation and use. I don't want to belabor that point because that's like a huge big other thing, but I want to focus in on the, like the practicalities of that because I think this is interesting. You're sitting at a zero sum table, right? There's a big pie in the middle of it and there's renewable energy sitting at the table. There's fossil fuel energy sitting at the table and the government sitting there being like, we got to divvy up this pie. And so this is sort of like the legislative process that we've seen for the last 50, 60 years. And those legacy industries, while they understand they need to adapt to survive, they're also really, really good at getting into those halls of government and understanding how to stack the deck or tip the tables in their favor. So they get more subsidies, they get more sort of built-in advantages. And we're seeing like writ large the sustainable energy, the sort of that, that transition, that next wave of how do we generate energy is trying to catch up to that sort of long-standing advantage. How do you guys see your role in both being like a cooperative player, as you said you have, but also sitting at that sort of zero-sum table where it's like, listen, there's going to be winners and losers in this you know, legislative slicing up the pie process? You know, a few things, right? I mean, I think when we come to the table – you know, as an electricity industry, right? And so mm-hmm. there's, you know, electricity is a subset of energy. The energy industry is much bigger and much more hairy and much more complex and much more political than the electricity industry. But the electricity industry has all those things too. So I'll just speak for the electricity industry. I mean, look, the first thing I think um, we talk about when we come to that table is it's not a zero sum game, right? If you think about the at the at the highest level, what we're going to do to solve the climate crisis, we're gonna electrify everything, right? That's like mm-hmm. the, the phrase. Um, what we're gonna do is we're gonna double or triple the amount of electricity that we consume over the next two or three decades. And so in fact, the pie isn't fixed, the pie is growing to three, maybe four times its, its size. And it's a huge pie. And so, you know, I think where, you know, we start from and, and, and where we try to, you know, talk with, you know, utilities and regulators and things like that about is it's a big pie today. It's growing. There's more than enough for everyone to, to sort of go around. Like, let's figure out how to do this in the best way, way possible. And I think if you start from that point, you have more productive conversations. But look, like, I think at the end of the day, right, the biggest problem in Uh, The electricity industry right now is the ability to effectively regulate. And so, you know, if you get back to sort of the fact, you know, what we were talking about earlier, right? Electricity is the only industry in America that allows monopolies. You know, when when that was being debated in the you know 1930s and 1940s, um, the idea was that these would be regulated monopolies. Right. And that's the reason that we have public service commissions. And when utilities want to do something, they have to go to the public service commission and this, that and the other thing. Right. I think what's happened over time is that we as a society have forgotten how complicated regulating electricity markets is. And we haven't given the regulators the tools or the resources or the money that they need to effectively regulate the electricity system. Um, And therefore, broadly, they're not doing a very good job. And what ends up happening is that, you know, Think about like the PUC or the Public Utility Commission or electricity regulators as kind of like the referees in the game, right? Um, The referees are really, really biased in one direction, right? right? 
not because like they intend to be really, really biased in one direction, but because they know the players on one team really, really well, and they're meeting the players on the other team for the first time. Well, there's also a huge resource disparity, right, between those two things. There's no parity at all about influencing that those that That's commission. That's right. So if you go to a public service commission meeting, right, and I would encourage, especially if you're in the electricity industry, yeah. you should definitely do this. All government's local. Totally down for our civic moment here. Get out yeah, and vote. Go, go, to, to- <laughs> go to a public service commission and just watch what happens, right? And what right. you'll see is when there's a when there's a regulatorily contentious issue, you know, brought by like a company like mine, right, a distributed energy company that comes in and says hey, we want to like do X, Y, Z thing. And here's why it's safe. And here's why it's good for society. Right. So like I'll show up, I might have like three or four, you know, engineers that show up with me to be expert witnesses and and, and be able to talk about nuanced technical details. And then the regulators will show up. Right. And typically each public service commission, there'll be like five to seven people and they'll have, you know, two people behind them that are kind of like their staff. Right. To help them advise on issues. And then the utility shows up with like a thousand engineers, right? Right, and and it's it's not a fair fight, no, right? And so the 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 reality of the situation is that um, the regulators are so overwhelmed that more times than not they just do the easy thing, not the necessary thing. And so we you know work in a, we work in an industry right now where we're supposed to be working with regulated monopolies but they're not very well regulated, right? And again, that's not because we don't have great regulators in this country and they're not working hard in that, you know, sophisticated and smart people. It's just because there's a power imbalance, right? And they're not, they don't have the resources they need to be able to really dig in to a lot of these issues and, and figure out how to make them work, right? And so we see that play out time and time and time again. And so it's one of the things, you know, I talk to legislators at the federal level and at the state level about all the time, right, which is, in the long term, right, if you want to fix this and you want to make sure the electricity industry is more or less a meritocracy, right, where the best technology, the best idea wins, regardless of who has it. Um, and we're going to keep the current structure that we have in place. You know, the key to doing that is making sure that we're ruthlessly effective at regulation. And that's not the case today. And I think it's something that we as a society need to invest more in in the future. I'm also, I'm also not, not sure, sure if that's... that's- I, I wish that so I went to college to get into politics and watch like all of the West Wing. And I'm like, oh, this yeah, must yeah, be yeah, how yeah, things, things work out, right? People have high minded debates about concepts and then we come at like, you know, the best solution. And look, a meritocracy, that's how it should be. And it's like the reality is so far away from that. And these are like real people with their own agendas and their own and it's like to some degree, what's there is that I that idealistic idea of like let's let the best thing win, and then there is also the just like knife fight in a phone booth that is like yeah it doesn't matter if it's the best thing or not it's capitalism right it's 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 it's, it's not designed to be fair. Yeah, you know, look, I I, I mean the, we can debate about Adam Smith and the market and saying whatever and like that kind of thing, but like. When it comes to the legislation side of it and the pop, we're going down this rabbit hole kind of deep, but like, I don't know, man, I, I feel like there needs to be people like you and companies like you that are saying all the things that you're doing. But as an as a bystander, as someone on the outside, I'm like, you know what there also needs to be? There needs to be the like black hat, vicious, down in the mud, just dirty people that like because they're on the other side, right? We know that that exists and not because of conjecture, because we've seen all the reports come out of manipulated data of the way that they're using money and peddling to influence things around the preservation of energy creation in a way that we know is now to the detriment of our survival here on earth. And like, okay, when do the good guys also fight dirty? I'm not asking that as like a question for you. I'm just saying like, that's, that's what I'm like, I feel like that's also the thing that people are looking for, right? Where it's like, no, I, I, I think, I think, look, I think there's, there's a lot of truth to what you just said. Right. And, you know, for the avoidance of doubt, right. I think if you kind of summarize, you know, what I've been saying, um, electricity markets are not fair. They're not a meritocracy and that's a problem. And, um, it's unlikely to change absent significant political will, 
Yeah. Right. And so, look, there does, you know, I, I, I do think, you know, if you think about the trajectory that we're on right now um, and how quickly we need to change things, the only way that we're going to, you know, effectively mitigate the climate crisis is if there's a massive uprising in society generally where people are just like unwilling to put up with this stuff, right? Yeah. And so that groundswell needs to happen. And look, I think like it's building, right? It's still not where it needs to be yet, but like we've made a ton of progress over the last, you know, three or four years. I think, you know, the IRA, which, you know, we, we might talk about a little like that was really driven by a grassroots movement of activists who are demanding action on climate. For sure. And we're, we're able to really, really effectively navigate the halls of Congress to make that happen. Um, and so, again, you know, I think I think there's progress and we're heading in the right direction. But, yeah, look, at the same time. Right. This isn't a fair fight. We're fighting an uphill battle. Um, and, you know, it's one of the things we talk about, I think, internally. And I talk to other executives in, in our industry about all the time. Right. And I think. You know, everyone's trying to figure it out, right? Is like, what can we do to make the most progress, right? Is that, you know, being collaborative? Is that being combative? You know, is it a mix of both, right? Um, and I think different people come to, you know, different conclusions. But the important thing is that, like, we keep making that progress. And, and hopefully, like, as we build that momentum, it kind of snowballs and it turns into the sort of movement we need it to be in order to solve this problem. Um, and, uh, you know, again, depending on the day you ask me, I'm either optimistic or pessimistic <laughs> about that. But well, I agree with you, like the Overton window, the sort of like, what are the table stakes? We need to keep pushing that as far as we can towards the side of not dying. Um, and every every inch matters. And in how we get there, you're right. Like whether overhanded, underhanded, brute force, subtle, convincing, whatever it is, right? Like the, the one thing that's different from most politics is that the science here holds up. And like, it's not a matter of conjecture of what happens if we continue going down this path. Now, speaking of going down this path, I want to change paths a little bit because I want to talk about you a little bit. Um, you have an atypical background. You uh, started off in the armed services and then you went to business school before you became an entrepreneur. Um, the I have had, I as I've told you, committed the great skin, sin of going to business school um, as well. And so uh, it's a weird community there, right? Like people go to business school for lots of reasons, but a lot of the times people go there is to sort of advance a career they're already in and consulting or finance or what have you, or, you know, they're sort of taking a little hiatus from Google or the whatever tech industry they're in because they needed a little bit of a break or they're going back to run their family's shipping company. And so they just need to make sure they understand what an FB&L like, looks like, whatever. What about you? Why did you go to say, I'm going to go be from in the Air Force to go to Stanford? Yeah. Um, so, you know, look, I, I, I guess, you know, we, to kind of tie, you know, the conversation together. Um, one of my biggest takeaways from being in the Air Force, being part of the Department of Defense, um, was that climate change is the biggest threat facing humanity, Right. And we talk about like the science, how established that is. I mean, when I was in the active duty service from 2005 to 2011, um, there was no debate about that, right? It was something that was acknowledged, talked about openly, right? In the halls of the Pentagon. Um, Admiral Mike Mullen, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at that time, published a report that said climate change is the number one national security threat based in the United States in the medium and long term. Um, the, the US military is really the institution that convinced me that working on climate was a worthwhile pursuit and a necessary thing. And, you know, when you think about, you know, kind of what you said earlier about like the politics of climate change, if there's one thing that frustrates me more than anything else, it's that this is a political issue. Um, it should not be, right? This should be in, in, a, in, a, in a, you know, sort of alternative universe, right? This is the issue that should bring all humanity together, right? Because it doesn't matter if you're, you know, living in Santa Barbara, California, where I live now, 
or you're living in Djibouti, Africa, where I used to live, um, what's coming is not good. And it's going to make our lives and the lives of our children and our grandchildren much worse. And so we should be unified on this. And the fact that it is a political issue frustrates me to no end. Um, but with that said, right, I mean, I think when I was getting ready to transition out of the military, I kind of knew what I wanted to work on, right? But I didn't know how to do it. And I didn't feel like I had any of the skills necessary to do that, right? I mean, I developed a skill set in the military that made me very good at my job, but it didn't really translate into um, private sector opportunities. Let's put it that way. Um, and so I didn't know how to go about, um, you know, accomplishing that. And, and by the way, like side note to this, right? I think it's um, outside of climate. One of the things I'm most passionate about is, is trying to figure out how to make the transition process easier for military veterans. Cause I think we do a terrible job, but that's a different story for a different day. Um, and so that, that's really why business school appealed to me, right? Business school appealed to me because I didn't know what I didn't know. And I wanted to go somewhere where I could meet people and have access to resources to try to figure out how I wanted to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish in my, in my private sector career. Um, and look, I think on balance, it was a really helpful experience, right? Yeah. Um, I, you know, it, it, the, the biggest thing about business school for me was I got to meet um, so many smart, talented, amazing people that I really believed were going to have a positive impact on the world. And like the key for me was they weren't that much smarter than I was. Right. And I think, you know, when when I talk to a lot of young people, especially in the energy industry, um, one of the things that like I find, especially among some of the smartest young people I talk to, is they're not ambitious, in, right? Mm. Because they kind of think like, oh, like if I'm going to start a company or I'm going to do this big thing, I have to be like Six Sigma, you know, intelligence, right? And when you meet those people who are Six Sigma intelligence, you find out like, ah, like they're human beings, <laughs> right? Like right. they're you know, they're super smart for sure. Right. And some are good at math and some are good at writing, whatever the case might be. But like, they're all flawed individuals with their own strengths and weaknesses. There are no like superheroes out there that are going to do this stuff. Right. And so what, what, what I think that that's like really the number one thing that I took away from business school is like, why not me? Right. Like I can, I can do this stuff. Right. I know that I I've had exposure to people who, have, who are going to accomplish or have accomplished amazing things. And like, I think I can hang, right? And, um, and I think that like confidence that I came out of business school with has really been a key for me in my career where, you know, again, like you said it at the beginning, right? To, to start an energy company, especially as a startup, especially in the way in which we went about doing it, you have to be like a little bit crazy, right? For you sure. have to have this like, amazing belief in yourself and your team and your co-founders. Um, and I think, you know, in a lot of ways where I got that confidence was in business school, being surrounded by the types of people I was surrounded with. And so, you know, that that's kind of the number one thing uh, about that. And then, you know, getting in the energy industry and having to take a few steps back and, and learn how the business worked and things like that for a few years before I, you know, helped start this company. Um, but yeah, it's been a crazy journey and I, you know, probably wouldn't be where I am without the experience I had those two years. So last question, what advice would you give both one, somebody who's thinking about making that transition that you did and like saying like, all right, it sounds intimidating, right? You're going from something that was very different. I was a sommelier before I went to business school, so I couldn't find my way except around an Excel doc to save my life. Um, not that there's any equivalency between that and being in the armed services, let me just say, but different. <laughs> um, so what advice do you give to that? Somebody who's transitioning. And then second, what advice would you give yourself if you were to go back to the beginning part of this journey? You know, the advice, the advice I have for pretty much every young person that talks to me about, you know, coming out of, you know, whatever sector tech or consulting or whatever, and coming into the climate space is do it. Mm -hmm. Um, and the reason I say that is, is kind of twofold, right? I think the first thing is 
start out by understanding that no one knows what's happening and no one knows uh, how this is going to play out, right? I think like for a lot of young people who are looking at this, they think, oh, like the energy industry, their electricity space, like there are people that know all these things that I don't know and I'll never be able to like get in and get up the learning curve and all that kind of stuff. Um, not the case, right? Like we're all figuring this out on the fly. Whether you talk to like the head of an oil and gas company or the head of a big solar company or the you know CEO of a startup that's just starting out, right? This is evolving so quickly and the landscape's changing so quickly that, that we're all like trying to figure out what's next. And so, yeah, like experience matters, but it doesn't matter that much. Right. Um, but the right. second reason that, you know, I tell people that is in my life, um, what I found is that you can't underestimate the importance of working on something that matters, right? Like there are a lot of ways to make money. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, that's going to come and go. I think like the feeling you have when you, you know, go home from especially like a bad day and um, are, you know, at least able to like say, you know, I went through this in pursuit of something that's bigger than me. I think that matters a lot, right? In terms of happiness, satisfaction, all the things we want as, as individuals. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the things that I think, you know, the climate tech industry offers to a lot of people who are interested, right? Like you can come to work and on the first day you get to work, you can start working on something that really truly matters. Um, and it's going to have a positive impact on society. And by the way, it's also probably the greatest economic opportunity in the history of humankind. Right. And so yeah. you put those two yeah. things together and I think like you should do it right. We need you like come, there's a lot of open jobs, like we'll find something for you um, and then like get to work. And I think, you know, for most people, that's the right answer, because, again, this is like an all hands on deck type thing. And we need more smart, talented people coming into the space. Yeah, both of those things resonate tremendously. And a lot of it's like just get up and go, you know, like there's there's no time. If not you, who, if not now, when? Exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, I guess, look, the advice I would give to myself, right, progress is not linear. And I think, you know, how I how I had always kind of thought about like my career was very linearly, right? Like I was going to like I have like a short term goal. I'm going to accomplish this goal. Then like the next thing's going to happen. And the next thing's going to happen. And over time, right, I'm going to get to where I want to be. Um, and that's not at all how it works, especially if you're going to do something entrepreneurial, right? What you have to expect is that you know, your career trajectory is going to look a lot like a stock market ticker. There are going to be good days. There are going to be bad days. There are going to be good months. There are going to be bad months. There are going to be good years. There are going to be bad years. And what matters is the trend over time. And so, you know, I think that I would probably have saved myself a bunch of temper tantrums if I just kind of went into th this thing, understanding that there are going to be periods where I go backwards. Right. Like that's part of the game we're playing and it's going to happen. Um, and so, you know, the right answer is like get up the next day and, you know, keep working and hope the next day is a bump up. And, you know, the only time to really get concerned is if you look back at a trend over maybe like two or three years and you're heading in the wrong direction. That's when, you know, maybe you start talking about like, hey, I should do something different or maybe, you know, my talents aren't being utilized properly. But on like a day-to-day, week-to-week basis, that's going to happen. And you just got to be prepared to weather that storm. You know, I, I'm glad you say that because from the outside looking in, it's like it's just an unmitigated success. Like you guys started this company, you raised a ton of money, you hit the ground running, and then you raised a ton more money. And now you've, you're incredibly well capitalized and you're positioned to be, like you said, an integral part of one of the fastest expanding economic opportunities since the internet, like how do we get and use energy apart from AI perhaps is like one of the, the most robust places to go invest stuff. And it just like, you know, you're, you're looking at the resume, you're like, yeah, where are the bad days on that? That's the envy of anyone. No, look, and this is, this is maybe like a great, a great place to end this. Um, and I, I'll share a personal anecdote. Anyone who looks at our company and sees like, a successful company that just kind of happened overnight. That's the wrong takeaway. Like I can tell you 
as someone who has been there every single day, that this is a total shit show. It was it was the hardest <laughs> thing I've ever done. To hear that. But but it was it was the hardest thing I've ever done by a lot. Some of our success was planned. Some of our success wasn't planned. We've had a lot of failures. We've had a lot of setbacks. We've had a lot of bad days. It's been hard, right? Like, one, you know, I started this company, and we didn't talk about this, but I started this company with my best friend from growing up and his dad, right? Those were the three co-founders of Scale Microgrids. And then, you know, one of my buddies from the Air Force and, and one of the kids who worked for me at my previous firm, that the five of us were kind of the people in the room on the first day that Scale opened its doors. Um, and it's been hard on our relationships, right? Mm. Like... We, we've gone through a lot together and it's been, it's been really, really, really challenging. And, you know, that's one of the things I think about a lot when I think about, you know, why, how we've gotten to where we've gotten. I don't think this would be the case if the only thing we were trying to do was make money, right? Um, I don't think it would have held up, right? I don't think we would have been able to like get through some of the most challenging times that, that we've, we've gotten through. Um, I think what mattered to us is that, like, it's worth it because we are trying to pursue a mission that is bigger than ourselves, right? And because of that, right, you weather the storm and you deal with, you know, people yelling at you and you yelling at people and saying things you don't mean and having things that people don't mean said to you, right? And, like, all that kind of stuff. Um, the, the reason that you kind of do that is because this really, really, really matters. And I hope that, you know, people, especially entrepreneurial people in this space, um, recognize that, right? That like, this is going to be a fight and you're going to have to like claw and scrape and figure it out, you know, every single inch of the way, um, but doing that in pursuit of something that's as noble as trying to address the climate crisis um, makes it worth it, right? And, and I think if you kind of have that mentality, um, that's, that's one of the drivers of success for a lot of climate tech entrepreneurs I've met, right? Is that they're, quitting isn't an option, right? Because of what, what we're trying to do and, and the big picture here. And so, um, look, you know, I think, I think this is, um, you know, this is the fight of our lives. Right. Like there's a lot of nonsense in day to day lives. But like if we don't address the climate crisis and what's coming, um, we haven't done our jobs as a generation of humanity. And um, I don't want to I don't that's not what I want to be thinking about when I'm on my deathbed. Right. And so, um, you know, I think the answer is like, get up, work hard, get up the next day, work hard again, focus on success and money will follow. And, uh, you know, that's kind of how we think about it. And I think that's been a big key to sort of getting where we've gotten to. But it definitely hasn't been smooth. It definitely hasn't been linear. And it definitely hasn't come out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, right. It's an overnight success that only took 10 years to build. Exactly, right? Like, no, no, one, saw, no, no one saw the eight years when I was crying myself to sleep. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I'm, I'm in, like, like year three, three of that, that so, so I'm still, still crying myself to sleep all the time. time. So yeah. it's always <laughs> nice to talk to people on the other side. <laughs> no, look, it's, 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 part, it's part of the journey. And, and you know, the thing, the thing that's crazy about it, right, is you do that not knowing what the out end result is going to be, right? And so, you know, it's one of the reasons that I think, you know, some of the people that I have the most respect for in climate tech are people who have tried and failed, right? Um, because I think what matters is trying. And at the end of the day, right, like if you try, I think you can look at yourself in the mirror and said, look, when the fight came to humanity, right, like I stepped up, I was a warrior. Sometimes it doesn't work out. But I think what matters is that you're standing there and, and you're trying to do what you can. And um, I wish more people would do that. And so, you know, regardless of sort of what the outcome of this pursuit is for you, man, I think, I think that's going to be something you take with you for the rest of your life. I, I know it's something I take with me every single day just to say that like you know i don't know whether investors are happy about my company today or sad about my company today right like i'm going to do the same thing tomorrow um and i'm going to keep trying to fight and keep trying to make progress and keep trying to make myself a little bit better version of myself um and and hopefully right as a collective with a lot of other people across the world um we're going to do that and we're going to be able to say that like you know, when humanity was threatened, we stepped up and fixed it. 
And that outcome is still on the table. That opportunity is still there. We're behind schedule, but we're not out of it. And uh, that's the mentality I think we should all take to work every day. Amen to that. I feel like that's as good a place as any to wrap it up. Tim, thank you so much for coming on today, man. I really appreciate really appreciate your perspective and uh, the way with which you approach these things. Well, thanks so much for having me, man. This was a lot of fun. And uh, someday you're going to have to take me wine tasting because I'm trying to get good at that. But uh, it's, it's, I'm not there yet. My palate is not sophisticated. I'll take you wine tasting if you teach me electrical engineering. I feel like mine's going to be a lot simpler than that. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. No, it was great right, talking to you, man. Thanks so much for the opportunity. All right. Thanks for coming on. That was Tim Haid, the COO and co-founder of Microgrid Solutions. Today's episode was produced and edited by the one and only Matt Simon, and our music is by the indomitable James Rhodes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Who's Saving the Planet, and if you have a minute, tell a friend or leave a review on Apple or on Spotify um, and let people know what you think of the podcast. It really helps us, and it gives us a chance to reach more people about these incredible stories of people working to save the planet. You can always email us at hello at savingtheplanetpod.com with guest suggestions or feedback or just anything to brighten our day. Okay, thank you so much. We'll see you next week for another episode of Who's Saving the Planet.